Welcome back to the Adult Reading Rainbow. Chapter 4, Miracles of the One Thing. How to Read the Emerald Tablet. The alchemists believed the Emerald Tablet dated from the dawn of time and contained the divine revelation of the mechanics of creation. The tablet was the single authority that guided their theoretical and experimental work, and its author, Hermes Trismegistus, was regarded as a real person who had achieved union with the one mind of the whole universe. Hermes saw the totality of things, declared the Corpus Hermeticum. Having seen, he understood. Having understood, he had the power to reveal and show. And indeed, what he knew, he wrote down. What he wrote, he mostly hid away, keeping silence rather than speaking out, so that every generation coming into the world had to seek out these things. That hidden wisdom is what Akhenaten, Alexander, Bellinus, and many others have found so profound and enduring about the Emerald Tablet. The 34 lines of this supremely objective treatise are dense with meaning, and most readers feel compelled to search for the deeper meaning of its precepts. The tablet is organized into rubrics, so named because in the Latin translations, the first letter of each stanza was written in bold red ink. If we divide the lines according to their natural punctuation and paragraphing, we end up with seven rubrics. The introductory rubric describes the author's attitude and sets the way in which the tablet should be approached. In truth, without deceit, certain and most veritable. This declaration is a poignant plea, not only for absolute truthfulness, but also for freedom of consciousness. The tablet carries a message beyond transient notions of hearsay and orthodoxy orthodoxy, and right to experience states of mind outside the ordinary is a prerequisite to using it. Indeed, part of the experience of working with the Emerald Tablet is the exhilaration of becoming mentally fluid enough to grasp the multi-layered meanings of its words. For the truths of the tablet come across on many different levels at once. On the strictly physical level, the introductory rubric tells us that the truth expressed here is not fantasy, but is real and can be known or verified by experimentation. To paraphrase this rubric in psychological terms, we must become free of dogma, without ego-centered, and most intuitive. 
For most of us, this requires a purification, a clearing away of worldly concerns to expose the unadulterated being within. If we open our minds and hearts in this way, this remarkably succinct document will speak volumes to our essence, our real self. The Doctrine of Correspondences The second rubric of the Emerald Tablet is known as the Orientation Rubric because it positions the reader in relation to processes described in the tablet. That which is below corresponds to that which is above, and that which is above corresponds to that which is below. To accomplish the miracles of the one thing, and just as all things have come from this one thing, through the meditation of the one mind. So do all created things originate from this one thing through transformation. The relationship described here is vertical and it locates the reader at the center of a limit living interaction between the above and the below, between heaven and earth. This cosmic axis, the backbone of God, is a divine image imprinted on all of creation. It extends infinitely upward and infinitely downward, and the only thing clearly defined is the center from which the above and below stretch outward. It is from this central position that the powers of the above and below can be observed and put in action. That balanced viewpoint is achieved through pure, egoless consciousness, what this rubric refers to as the one mind. From out-of-body and near-death experience accounts to religious and psychedelic visions, People's descriptions of the co cosmic axis are remarkably similar. There is always a brilliant light above and a watery darkness below. Above are archetypal forces, total knowledge, and a sense of supreme mind or thoughtful power. Below exists primordial matter, the one thing which is like a dense fluid that can be fashioned into anything through the action of the one mind. Like elemental mercury, the primeval matter reflects that which is over it and can take the form of any container, even the vessel of thought alone. When acted on from above, the one thing is infused with the fire of consciousness and this union of fire and water is the ultimate act of creation. Within the framework of the above and below, there are ascending and descending forces or pathways that allow one's consciousness to journey to both realms 
and all levels in between. This occurs in a variety of altered states in which consciousness seems detached from the body. When we are in these separated and purified states of mind, the falseness and ugliness of our own egos, who we think we are, is made disturbingly clear. On our return to the physical world, we perceive it as gray and grossly inadequate, a heaviness that traps and conceals our true spiritual nature. The concept of higher levels determining our reality is part of the doctrine of correspondences expressed in this rubric. That doctrine postulates that corresponding planes of creation exist in any given situation and mirror a higher source or explanation for things. The powers of above and below continue to manifest themselves in ways we cannot comprehend until we access the levels from which they emanate. Actually, this is a most concise statement of the concept of archetypes, which are primordial ideals or independent forces that impose pre-existing patterns of organization on the various levels of manifest reality. The fact that everywhere throughout the various levels of existence, there are vertical links with universal prototypes, wrote one alchemical philosopher, means that the cosmological view of nature and also every art based on it possesses a hierarchical Hierarchy. For example, the hierarchy described in the orientation rubric is the source of the famous dictum, as above, so below. A catchphrase which describes processes ranging from magical invocation to trickle-down economics. However, that interpretation acknowledges only half the equation. We are so entrained by the pattern taught by the Western religious traditions that we automatically aspire only to the above and reject the below entirely. But by severing the connection between the above and below, we make alchemy impossible. The doctrine of correspondences put forth in the Emerald Tablet really says, as, above, as below, so above, as above, so below, and is meant to reflect not the segregation, but the flow of the universe, such as we find in the Chinese Tao. The yin-yang symbol depicts the eternal interplay of opposing forces of light and darkness and mind and matter in which each contains the seed of the other. In alchemy, this concept is expressed in the Ouroboros, the snake eating its own tail, 
which is the sense of the translation presented in this book. According to the order of things in the Emerald Tablet, our work begins in the below in this world. And, in, and if successfully initiated there, the above and below were together to bring about the miracles of the one thing. Furthermore, the second rubric tells us that our everyday lives, as well as those events we perceive as miraculous, are accomplished by the natural interplay of the powers of the above and the below. In other words, there are no real miracles, only manifestations of the universe's hidden laws that we do not understand. To comprehend those principles, we must first acquire the correct vertical orientation or attitude. The Emerald Tablet suggests that we call the spiritual world what we call the spiritual world is actually more real than physical reality because it exists above and before physical manifestation. To the ancients, that subtle realm was very near at hand. They equated it with the processes of thought and imagination which they could experience within themselves simply by closing their eyes in meditation. For them, the gross physical world was still directly connected with the higher realm of mind. The Revelation of Hermes. Hermes Tresmegistus describes breaking away from material reality and traveling along the hidden cosmic access in the divine Pymander, mind of the sovereignty, part of the Hermes, I mean, excuse me, Corpus Hermeticum. While meditating, Hermes enters an altered state of consciousness. My thought was raised to a great height, he explains, Yet my bodily senses had been put under restraint as in sleep, though not such sleep as that of men weighed down by fullness of food or bodily weariness. Thus freed from attachment to his bodily senses, his mind begins to travel along the spiritual axis. Axis. Forthwith all things changed in aspect before me and were opened out in a moment, and I beheld a boundless view. All was changed into light, a mild and joyous light, and I marveled when I saw it. And in a little while there came to be in one part a downward tending darkness, terrible and grim. And thereafter, I saw the darkness changing into a watery substance, which was unspeakably tossed about. Coiling in sinuous folds, it gave forth smoke as from fire. And I heard it making an indescribable 
sound of lamentation, for there was sent forth from it an inarticulate cry. But from the light there came forth a holy speech, which took in stand upon the watery substance. And methought this word was the voice of the light. And the divine mind spoke for me to hear that light is I, the one, even the one mind, the first God who was before the watery substance, which appeared out of darkness. And the word which came forth from the light is the son of God. Learn my meaning by looking at what you yourself have in you. For you too, the word is son and mind the father of the word. They are not separate from one another. For life is the union of word and mind. Now, fix your thought upon the light and learn to know it. I saw my mind in that light consisted of innumerable powers and had come to be an ordered world, but a world without the bounds of material existence. This I perceived in thought, seeing it by reason of the words which the divine mind had spoken to me. And when I was amazed, he spoke again to me. You have seen in your mind the archetypal form, which is prior to the beginning of things and is limitless. Hermes strains to apprehend the meaning of these words and wonders how the archetypal form can determine physical reality. But tell me, he asks, whence did the elements of nature come into being? They issued from God's purpose, comes the answer, which beheld that beauteous world and copied it. The watery substance, the one thing, having received the word, was fashioned into an ordered world, the elements being separated out from it. And from the elements came forth the brood of living creatures and the one mind, that mind of life and light, being male and female, both gave birth to another mind, which was a maker of things. And this made out of the elements seven planets who encompass with their orbits of the world perceived by sense and their administration, administration is called destiny. And forthwith, Hermes continues, the word of God leapt from the downward tending elements of nature to the pure body of the highest sphere, which had already existed and united with, with mind and the maker. For the word was of one substance with that mind too. And the downward tending elements of nature were left devoid of reason, so as to be mere matter. 
The astonishing implication of this divine message is that if you can reach the one mind, you can change reality by transforming the one thing, the precursor of all physical manifestation. Temporarily split off from the one mind, the consciousness embodied in mind the maker participates in the fashioning of reality as we know it. This is the same idea as the demiurge or divine craftsman expressed in some religions. On the microcosmic scale, the mind, the maker, is nothing less than the mind of man. And anyone who is centered and balanced along the cosmic axis can be in touch with the powers of both the above and the below. Hermes is eager to learn more and the divine mind continues to explain the details of creation, showing him all the levels of existence from the basic four elements of matter fashioned out of the one thing to the eight heavenly spheres contained within the one mind itself. Next, the divine mind reveals that man himself is a copy of the universe and contains within himself all the same levels and all the same powers of light and darkness that make up the fabric of the above and the below. And I inscribed in my memory the benefaction of the divine mind says Hermes upon leaving his altered consciousness. And I was exceedingly glad, for I was full with that for which I craved. My bodily sleep had come to be sober wakefulness of soul, and the closing of my eyes, true vision, and my silence, pregnant with good, and my barrenness of speech, a brood of holy thoughts, Becoming God-inspired, I attained the abode of truth. People throughout the ages have had similar encounters along the spiritual axis of reality. Jacob's vision of the latter, described in Genesis, is one example. After falling asleep in a field with his head on a rock, Jacob has a vision of a splendid ladder reaching into the heavens. Using the latter, the angels, archetypal powers, are able to traverse heaven and earth. That latter will become an oft-used image in the art of the alchemist, referring to the seven steps of transformation contained in the Emerald Tablet. The 12th century Christian mystic Hildegard of Bingen had many visions similar to those of Hermes in which the one mind merged with and organized the dark chaos of the one thing below. And she felt that God inscribed the entire divine deed on the human form. For Dominican cleric, Miser Eckhart, created matter was an amalgam made of soul 
and thought. God is everywhere and is everywhere complete. He wrote, God is the innermost part of each and everything. Eckhart described the one thing as something separate from God, a simple ground and still desert without any distinctions out of which all things were created. A modern example of traveling in this spiritual realm is that of a 28-year-old mathematics professor. After being lifted to great heights during an out-of-body experience, he reported, All that once, without any further change, my eyes were opened, above and in front of me, yet in me, of me, and around was the glory of the archetypal light. Nothing can be more truly light since the light makes all other light to be light, nor is it a flat material light, but a creative light of life itself, streaming forth in love and understanding and forming all other lives out of its substance. Far below, as things can be seen at these times without turning away, there appeared something like the surface of earth. But this was only for a moment to make clear the immense height to which my soul had been raised and her nearness to the sun. The alchemist whose craft was both spiritual and material in nature, actually developed step-by-step procedures for working in this rarefied realm and learning to alter reality. Over the centuries, they discovered ways of accessing the one mind and transmuting the physical and spiritual elements through the one thing. These transcendental operations are presented in chapters 11 through 17. However, before we can understand and apply the powers of the above and below in our own lives, we have to try to comprehend the true nature of the one thing through which physical, psychological, and spiritual reality is formed. What is the one thing? The one thing mentioned in the orientation rubric is really the main topic of the entire Emerald Tablet. Why is the one thing so important? Why is the one thing the subject and not the one mind? Because in essence, the Emerald Tablet is not a religious document. It is a practical treatise concerning a spiritual technology designed to allow man to reach his highest expression. And the tablet offers an advanced formula for personal transformation and accelerated evolution. In fact, the concluding phrase of the orientation rubric, so do all created things originate from this one thing through transformation is one of the earliest formulations of the idea of the evolution of life, many centuries before Charles Darwin was selected to be part of our species.
Bellinus viewed the one thing as a supreme force which cannot be seen and has no perceptible form until it is grounded in material reality by the action or thought of the one mind, the mind of the supreme being. In nearly every religion, knowing the name of God bestows great magical power. However, the name of God is the name of the one thing, and both are indescribable and can only be directly perceived. Thus, fundamental principle is expressed in the ancient Egyptian myth of Isis and Ra. Isis wanted to become a goddess and knew she had to find out the true name of Ra, the supreme sun god of Egypt, to succeed. So she fashioned a make a snake from the mud made when some of Ra's saliva fell from heaven. Because the snake was made from Ra himself, its venom was the only substance that could harm him. Isis concealed the viper in the dust on a road until Ra visited Earth. When he walked by the snake, it bit him, and there was nothing he could do as the poison cursed through him. Ra felt excruciating pain for the very first time, and in his agony, called out to the other gods for help. But only Isis came forward. Tell me your name, she said, and I will cure you. Ra tried to trick Isis into giving him the cure, but she cleverly rebuked him. Finally, Ra said, my name is hidden in my body. Let it pass from my heart to your heart. By directly experiencing the ineffable magic name, Isis immediately cured Ra and became an immoral, immortal herself. The message of this myth is that the signature of God is in all things, but it is not something we can write out or even pronounce. It is simply sharing his heart and seeking his presence. This feeling is expressed by mystics as a kind of divine love. Surprisingly, the Old Testament gives the one thing a voice in the eighth chapter of the book of Proverbs, which many medieval alchemists considered the biblical emerald tablet. That I, the one thing, may cause those that love me to inherit substance, and I will fill their treasures. The Lord possessed me in the beginning of his way, before his works of old. I was set up from everlasting, from the beginning, or ever the earth was. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains, abounding the water. Before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. While as yet he had not made the earth, nor the fields, nor the highest part of the dust of the world. 
When he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he set a compass upon the face of the depths, when he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the fountains of the deep, when he gave to the sea his decree that the waters should not pass his commandment, when he appointed the foundations of the earth, then I was by him as one brought up with him. In the eighth chapter of the book of Proverbs, we see creation from the viewpoint of the one thing. In the divine pimander, we see it through the one mind. In both cases, it is the one thing that is transformed to bring about new creation. If we try to picture the one thing, it appears as a chaotic mass full of churning primordial energy, such as that described in the revelation of Hermes. It also seems to be a pre-existing given in the evolution of the universe as described in the Bible. The one thing is completely autonomous and dependent on nothing for its existence. Usually invisible, the one thing can also be thought of as a morphic field, an interdimensional force that is part of the very fabric of space. When actually perceived by individuals, it takes on a variety of forms that often, often depend on a person's unconscious expectations. Moses saw it as a bush that burned with fire and was not consumed, while modern man is likely to conceive of it as a fire in the sky or a UFO. Over the last two millennia, alchemists have written millions of words trying to describe the one thing in terms of their first matter, a theoretical substance everywhere to be found. Perhaps the simplest description, however, is given in the 2,500-year-old words of the Chinese sage Lao Tzu. There is a thing confusedly formed, born before sky and earth, in the silence and the void standing alone and unchanging, ever present and in motion. It is capable of being the mother of all. The elusive first matter. For the alchemist, the one thing was the prima materia or first matter, the common source of all things on all levels. This plastic, morphing, chaotic, massa confusa was essentially irrepresentable, though that did not stop them from trying to describe it. Sometimes they referred to the first matter as the earth of paradise, which they depicted as a pair of poisonous serpents or fire-breathing dragons to emphasize its bisexual nature and to warn other alchemists that it could be dangerous for mortals to handle the heavenly earth. The alchemists also portrayed the first matter 
as the root of itself, and its primary symbol became the Ouroboros. Drawing of the Ouroboros carried captions reading all is one or one thing is all. The circular snake was sometimes shown with a half light and half dark body, alluding to the opposing principles of creation depicted in the yin yang symbol of the Chinese Tao, which is yet another classic symbol of the one thing. Sometimes the same idea was portrayed by two fighting dragons at each other's throats, releasing inherent male and female energies that recombined in their shared blood. The principle expressed in the dueling dragons and the Ouroboros is that ultimately the one mind and the one thing are the same, eternally flowing into one another in an endless Mobius loop of creation. Here is the mystery declared by an ancient Greek alchemy text. The serpent Ouroboros is the composition which in our work is devoured and melted, dissolved and transformed. It becomes dark green from which the golden color derives. Its stomach and back are the color of saffron. Its head is dark green. Its legs are the four imperfect metals lead, copper, tin, and iron. Its three ears are the three sublimated vapors, sulfur, mercury, and salt. The one gives the other its blood, and the one engenders the other. Nature rejoices in nature. Nature charms nature. Nature triumphs over nature. And nature match, masters nature. And this is not from one nature opposing another, but through the one and same nature, through the alchemical process with great care and great effort. Alchemical drawings depict the first matter in a variety of other forms. Some show it as a square stone, while others depict eight-pointed stars or luminous spheres. In fact, the Lexicon of Alchemy, first published in 1612, gives 84 synonyms for the first matter. Among the most significant code words were Philosopher's Stone, Ore of Hermes, Bird of Hermes, Tartar of the philosophers, water of life, milk of virgin, urine of boys, spittle of the moon, celestial dew, virtue of mercury, heart of the sun, the rainbow, flower of the sun, seed of the world, shadow of the sun, sulfur of nature, Sun of the sun and moon, soul of Saturn, spiritual blood, the sacrificial lamb, grapes of the vine, menstruum, the bride, the salamander, 
the ugly toad and dung. Not surprisingly, it is said that all who have written about the first matter concealed its true nature. However, we do get the distinct impression that the first matter is a subtle substance rejected or taken for granted by most people. Our material is stuff of no price or value, declares one alchemist. Whoever comes across it hardly troubles to pick it up. Much money does not buy it. It is thrown in the ways of poor, both poor and rich. Alchemists often commented that the first matter is something that all of us discard in our youth as having no value. When in fact, it is one of the most powerful things we encounter in life, although it hides at the edge of, edge of reality balance between physical and non-physical being. One of the authors in the 12th century Turbo Philosophium, the assembly of philosophers, describes it as a thing which is found everywhere, which is a stone and no stone, contemptible and precious, hidden, concealed, and yet known to everyone. Then he adds, it is a thing stronger and more sublime than all other things. It is familiar to all men, both young and old, explains the author of Gloria Mundi, Paradis Tafel, Glory of the World, the Emerald Tablet. It is found in the country in the village, in the town, and all things created by God, yet it is despised by all. Rich and poor handle it every day. It is cast into the street by servant maids. Children play with it, yet no one prizes it. Though next to, humans, next to the human soul, it is the most beautiful and most precious thing upon earth and has the power to pull down kings and princes. There is a secret stone, echoes another alchemist, hidden in a deep well, worthless and rejected, concealed in dung or filth. Our most precious stone, laments yet another, cast forth upon the dunghill being most dear, is made the vilest of the vile. What sort of definition can we put together from all these odd descriptions of the first matter? The very first expression of matter is the outline of its form, the image of it within the one mind. That image-making power of consciousness is known as imagination. Though the ancients would have referred to it as the word or thought of God, according to the Emerald Tablet, that power is reflected in the below, in the mind of man. The alchemists believed that the common act of imagination was somehow connected to the transformation of matter. They suspected that the imagination is all its chaotic forms 
from the horrifying creatures of nightmares to the lofty visions of science is at the heart of the first matter. It is the imagination that we discard in our youth as having no value. It is the imagination that is familiar to all, both rich and poor. It is the imagination which is hidden and yet known to everyone. It is the imagination that is a stone and no stone. If we look up the definition of imagination in the lexicon of alchemy, we read that imagination is is the star in man, the celestial or super celestial body. Therefore, the imagination is a divine gift, the piece of heaven concealed in man. The student in alchemy comes to realize the secret power of imagination during solitary, solitary meditation. As the author of the Rosarium Philosophorum Rosary of Philosophers advises, take care of that your door is well and firmly closed so that he who is within cannot escape and God willing, you will reach the goal. Nature carries out her operations gradually. And indeed, I would have you do the same. Let your imagination be guided wholly by nature. Though whom the bodies regenerate themselves in the bowels of the earth. And imagine this with true and not with fantastic imagination. What alchemists called the first matter was grounded in the pure image-making ability of our minds that knows no bounds, that has no singular characteristic other than its ability to take on all characteristics. But by the term imagination, they meant a special kind of mental imagery or visualization that is directly connected to the ground of reality. Imagination, without that connect connection, is simple fantasy. Alas, we are taught to discard our true imagination and sever our ties to the hidden reality while we are still children. In most modern societies, schools and churches serve only to destroy our personal link to the gods and replace it with their own dogma. That is why Bellinus made such an effort to renew the connection between the true imagination and the one thing in all types of religious communities, for it is the connection with the above and not a religious sect, sex popularity that counts, that really counts. Though the word imagination is never mentioned, one of the clearest definitions of the first matter is found in an alchemy text dating from 1625 called the Sophic Hydrolith, water stone of the wise. The first matter is found in the one thing out of which alone our stone is prepared. They also call it the seed of the world from which all natural objects 
take their origin. Its properties are of a singular kind. For, in addition to its marvelous nature and form, it is neither hot and dry like fire, nor cold and wet like water, nor cold and dry like earth, but a perfect preparation of all the elements. With respect to its outward appearance, they call it a stone and not a stone. It is found potentially everywhere and in everything, but in all its perfection and fullness only in one thing. By the ignorant and the beginner, it is thought to be the vilest and meanest thing. It is sought by many sages and found by few, suspected by those that are far away and received by those that are near, seen by all but known by few. This is the true imagination, the fundamental morphable energy of pure consciousness. It can be thought of as a swirling mass of heavy energy on the brink of materialization or as a slimy beast from which all other life evolves or as a chemically metallic water waiting to fill any container or thought. The first matter is the primal one thing of the Emerald Tablet, the pre-existing matrix of matter before it is acted on by the one mind. As we shall see, the author of the Emerald Tablet tells us exactly where to find this primordial matter in the next rubric.